let's get to the really important stuff today. How many of you are pulling for the Patriots tonight? How many of you are pulling for Atlanta tonight? How many of you are pulling for Atlanta just because you hate the Patriots? All right, well, I have, I have watched all week the interviews that they've had with the coaches and the players, and one of the things that has struck me about that is the absolute arrogance of the vast majority of the players and the coaches. I'm, I'm certain that confidence is something that they need, but there's just an arrogance and a pride in, in, in some of them that I... I just look at them thinking, it must be difficult to live with. It reminded me of a story that I, I read, a true story of a, a, there was a stubborn rich man that lived in Springfield, Illinois, who insisted that his neighbor, who was a very poor farmer, owed him $2.50. And so he went to the neighbor and told the man, you, you owe me this money, and the poor farmer looked at him and said, I... I don't owe you that money. I don't know where you're getting this. And so the rich man said, I'm going to sue you for it. And so the rich man of town went to a lawyer that was in town whose name was Abraham Lincoln and uh, explained the situation and said, I want you to take my case and I'm going to sue this man because I want this $2.50 from him. And Abraham Lincoln originally said, I'm not going to take the case. But then after hesitating for a minute, he looked at the man and he says, okay, here's how it's going to work. You pay me a $10 fee up front, and I will take your case. So the rich man pulled out the money and gave him the cash. Abraham Lincoln went to the poor farmer and said, here's the deal. I'm going to give you $5, $2.50 of which you're going to go, and you're going to pay this man so that he'll get off your back and leave you alone, and you keep the other two fifty. Of which the poor farmer went and gave the two fifty to the rich man. The rich man was satisfied. Abraham Lincoln got to keep $5. The rich man got paid $2.50 and got to keep $2.50. And it cost the rich man $10 because he was a stubborn, proud man. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been accused of being stubborn? You're raising hands anyway. <laughs> you know what that proves to me? You wear it as a badge of honor. I'm stubborn. People look at me and say, I'm stubborn. You know, stubbornness and pride grow from the same tree. And as I was trying to think of a passage of Scripture that I could use today that might have some semblance to, that I could at least use it partially because it's Super Bowl Sunday, it, I'm drawn back to a passage of Scripture that actually I preached about last week but would like to finish that verse. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to be highlighting the end of verse 5. Last week we talked about, uh, it was the, the Sunday we brought new members in, and so we were talking about characteristics of a healthy church. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, and then also in James 4, 6, these same words are repeated, but in, it starts out, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And then we get to this line here, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Father, I pray over these next few minutes that you will begin to 
speak into our hearts and minds in a way that only your Holy Spirit can do and confront us as to the shape-shifting nature of pride within our life and that you would lead us to places where we're more holy because we're more humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pride will kill you forever. Pride is the sin most likely to keep you from crying out to a Savior. Pride is what keeps you when you're in these moments of conviction, when the Holy Spirit is telling you that you need to give up the rights to your life and offer them to a Savior who loves you, and you will stand there and you resist what the Holy Spirit is telling you because you don't think you need a Savior. Those who think they are well will not look for a doctor. And as seriously dangerous as pride is, it's equally hard to spot. Because when it comes to diagnosing our own hearts, those of us who have the disease of pride have a hard time identifying our own sickness because it affects our eyesight. It causes us to view ourselves through a lens that colors and distorts the reality. Pride will paint even the ugliness of sin in our own life as something that is beautiful and commendable and justifiable when we look at our own life because we can all make excuses for ourselves. And we can't conclude that we don't struggle with pride because we don't see it within our hearts. I was going through a list of articles and books as I was preparing this week and came up with hundreds of different symptoms that might indicate pride within our life. And I begin to jot down a few of them today. And I thought, let me read a few of these just to see if, like you, the Holy Spirit begins to speak. Or like me, the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you that maybe there's something to this that needs to be applied to our life. If perhaps you look at those who are less educated or less affluent and less refined as less successful than yourself, you may be dealing with issues of pride. Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than your mate or others within your church? Do you have a judgmental spirit toward those who don't make the same lifestyle choices that you do? Do you have a sharp and critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your mate or your pastor or other people in leadership? Are you proud of the schedule that you keep, how disciplined you are, and how much you are able to accomplish in comparison to other people? Do you genuinely or do you generally think that your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you have a touchy and sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended and do you get your feelings hurt easily? Trying to leave a better impression of yourself than what is really true, would people in the church be shocked if they knew what you're like in your own home? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God and to others? In fact, when you're praying to the Lord, do you just ask Him, forgive me of my sin, or are you really, really specific because you know exactly what your sin is? But in a general prayer, you don't have to admit it. Do you resent being asked or expected to serve your family or your parents or others in some way? Do you become defensive when you get criticized or you're corrected and instantly try to cut the other person off and find faults in them that would disqualify them from being able to correct you? Are you a perfectionist? 
Do you get irked and impatient with people who aren't? Do you tend to be controlling? Controlling of your mates, controlling of your children, your friends, or those in your workplace? Does your husband or wife feel like they can never measure up to your expectations of what it means to be a good spouse? Or ladies, does your husband feel that he can never measure up to what you think a spiritual leader should look like? When other people want to talk to you about their difficulties, do you interrupt them so that you can tell them how much harder your life is than what they're personally going through right now? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or the reputation of your family? Do you neglect to express gratitude for little things, whether it be to God or for others? Do you neglect prayer and reading of the word every day because you're trying to tell God, I've really, I've got this and I don't need you? Do you get hurt if your accomplishments or your acts of service are not recognized and rewarded? Do you get hurt if your feelings or opinions are not considered when somebody around you is making a decision and it's made without being informing you or asking your opinion? Do you get mad at that? Do you react to rules? Do you have a hard time being told what to do? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help, whether it be practical help or spiritual help? When is the last time you said these words to a family member, to a friend, or a coworker? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And lastly, are you sitting here thinking of how many of these questions apply to somebody that you know and wish they were here to hear them? Feeling pretty good about yourself that none of these really apply to you. You might have a problem with pride. If you have your bulletin, there's an outline of the message there. The first point that I would like to talk about today is pride's center. Pride's center. Jesus was having a conversation with some Jews that didn't really believe who he was in John chapter 12, and you don't have to turn to it, but he begins to go through a list of about seven or eight verses where he's just indicting them on all of the things and all of the reasons that they have chosen not to believe that he's the Son of God. But in John chapter 12, verse 43, he encapsulates it, and he boils down his whole argument to this verse when he looks at them, and he goes, here's the reason. The reason is because you love the praise of men more than you love the praise of God. What people think about you matters more to you than what the God of heaven matters, thinks about you. And because you love the glory of man and not the glory of God, you don't want Jesus because you want human praise. You don't want Jesus because you want to be the center of everything. You want to be in control. You want to be exalted. You want to be made much of. You love being somebody, and you can pick whichever of these fits best because they all fit me apart from the sovereign grace of God. I told people in the first service, I have literally marinated in this all week. Many times in the middle of preparation, having to stop and just approach the Lord and saying, Father God, as you examine my heart, I feel so guilty in so many of these things that have held me from being everything that you want me to be. So today, as I'm proclaiming, I have been marinating in something that you're going to get for 30 minutes. I hate my pride. But I take more seriously how much God 
hates pride. Because pride is our greatest enemy because it makes God our enemy. The scripture that we used this morning says this, God opposes the proud. And since it's Super Bowl Sunday, I want you to think today, for those of you that know anything about football, there's a line of scrimmage. And the biggest people in the world are lined up on both sides of this line. These are big men. And literally go into hand-to-hand combat with each other so that they can move a football trying to get it to the end of the field. And what this scripture indicates to us is this. In the game of life, if you are loaded with pride or you let vestiges of pride find a place within you, you will look up at the line of scrimmage and discover God is on the other side, and that's a lousy way to live life. Discovering that on the other side of the line of scrimmage is God because he opposes the proud. And here's what makes pride so repulsive to God is that the way pride contends for supremacy with God Pride is not one sin among many. It's in a class by itself. And other sins lead the sinner further from God. But pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate you above God. That you would take supremacy over him. So pride is not just a sin. It's it's the mother of sin. In fact, we we discover in, in John 8, 44, it talks about Satan being the father of lies. He's the father of evil. If he's the father of evil, then pride becomes the mother that gives birth to other sin. Because pride will lead you into lying. You tell a lie because you're too proud to admit you were wrong or that you did something wrong. But the problem is so much bigger. Pride just doesn't tell lies. Pride is a lie. Because it tells you that you're somebody that you're not. Pride is self-obsession. It's preoccupation with ourselves. Therefore, it's a lie about the reality of our lives. It says that I am worth thinking about all the time. And it wrongly assumes that everything in your life should revolve around you. And pride deserves to die. But it's hard to spot. And it's harder to kill. Because pride is a slippery sin because it keeps changing or shifting shapes within our life. Jonathan Edwards said this, Pride is the most hidden, secret, deceptive of all sins. And sometimes it comes out in conversations with ourselves in different ways. And I was just thinking this week about conversations where I've discovered in my own life where pride can be an issue. Such as if I'm driving away from a meeting and I'm thinking, boy, I like the way that meeting went. You know, that meeting turned, that meeting turned and became really, really successful when I thought of a question that nobody else thought to ask. And boy, I just, wait a minute. That's such a prideful thought, man. I, man, it sounds like I'm taking credit for a meeting that's going well. I'm, God, I'm such a prideful person. Would you please, please forgive me? Man, I hate my pride. Meanwhile, three seconds later as I'm driving home, The thought comes to my mind, I fight pretty hard. I'm glad I caught that initial prideful thought right there at the root. I I wonder if everybody else in our church is aware of their prideful nature as much as I am. Wait a minute. It just happened again. I'm proud in my awareness of my pride. 
And just like that, we can slip into things because it seems so natural for us. Pride shifts shapes and looks different in all of our lives. I'd like to point out, secondly, a few things that pride may take a form of within your lives. First is fault finding. While pride causes us to filter out the evil that we see in ourselves, it also causes us to filter out the good that we would see in others. And as you begin to shift the way that you see others, what falls out the bottom is all of their faults. And so we become better at seeing the weaknesses and failures and faults in others than we are seeing the great things that God may have placed within their life. So when I'm sitting here in a sermon and I'm studying a passage, it's pride that prompts the terrible temptation within my heart to skip the spirit's surgery on my own heart and instead draft a mental plan of a potential conversation that I'm going to have to have with people who really need to hear this today. So I'm going through the word, and as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh, oh, I see a face with that verse. I can't wait to call them and say, hey, I need to talk to you. All the while, squirming away from the surgery that the Spirit wants to do in my own heart. Spiritually proud person shows it in finding fault of other saints. The genuinely humble Christian has so much to do at home and so much to do in their own life that they see so much evil in themselves that they are not apt to be very busy trying to dig it out of the hearts of others. Fault finding is a shape that it takes from time to time. It might take the shape of a harsh spirit. Those who have the sickness of pride in their hearts speak of other people's sin with contempt and irritation and frustration or judgment. Pride is is crouching inside of our belittling the struggles of others. It cowers inside the jokes that we make of our crazy spouse, hoping that other people will get the little sliver and jabs that we threw in there, hoping that it will diminish their view and elevate ours. Sometimes it even lurks within our prayers as we pray for our friends and we use terminology, whether it's subtle or not, that taints them as exasperating and irrational and irritating because of, oh God, do you see these things within their life? And by that, we develop a harsh spirit and Christians ought at least to treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats us with. Sometimes it looks like superficiality. When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned about whether others' perceptions of us are beneficial to us or not than we are about the reality of what lives in our hearts. You see, we fight the sins that have an impact on how others view us. If there are things that are out there and known, I will fight really hard and become accountable to those because I want everybody to know and everybody to see that I'm working hard at fighting those things. But it's the things that none of you know that oftentimes I'll let the lens of my life just cover and overlook because you don't know. And so it doesn't affect my reputation with you or the way that you look at me. And as long as I can make peace with those things in my own heart and you never know, then what difference does it really make? 
because we have great success at being holy in the areas where everybody sees us. There's a passage of scripture that's found in Luke chapter 18 where there's a Pharisee and a tax collector that's involved and Jesus tells this story about this Pharisee that's standing there in public and he's wearing his white robes and he's yelling out loud in prayer, Oh God, I just want everybody, I'm praying to you, but I'm praying loud because I want everybody to hear this. I am so thankful, God, that I'm so much holier than that tax collector over there. Thank you that I am not evil like so many people that are shopping in the market today. Oh Lord, I know I'm praying really loud for everybody to hear. But I just want you to know how proud I am of how you've made me. And over on the other side of the story, there's a tax collector who knows he's rotten. Who falls on his face in the dirt. And he declares to God exactly the position he's in because he sees things through the right lens. And he says, Lord, I'm lousy. I'm worthless. I'm unworthy. I'm sinful. I'm sick. Please have mercy on me. And Jesus very clearly in this saying uses this as he said, which one do you think found real justice in me? The one who publicly wanted to look great or the one who knew who he really was? Another shape that pride can take within our lives from time to time is defensiveness. Those who stand in the strength of Christ's righteousness alone find a confident hiding place when men and women attack or when Satan attacks through other people because true humility is not knocked off balance or thrown into a defensive posture when you are challenged or you're rebuked or somebody brings criticism against you, but it continues to do good because you've entrusted yourself to the Creator. Jonathan Edwards said that for the humble Christian, the more the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be unless it is in his prayer closet, and there a humble Christian will not be quiet, nor will they be still. In other words, there is a place to go when you're being criticized, whether you feel it's fair or unfair, and that is you run into the closet and you take it to the Lord in prayer. But if you find yourself constantly on the defensive and wanting to fight back, it might be that there's some issues that the Lord wants to begin to knock on the door of your heart with. Another shape that it can take is presumption before God. Humility approaches God with a humble assurance in Christ Jesus. If either the humble or the assurance is missing in that equation, our hearts might very well be affected with pride. Here's the way that comes across. Sometimes when you're more assured than you ought to be, you demean God by using terms like the big guy upstairs or having an uncomfortable relationship with him where you do not recognize the highest royalty and honor that we should pay him. We worship him in spirit and in truth, and we are humbled before him, and we need to have a right relationship with the the honesty and honor of his presence. There's another side to that pride coin, and that is that there's sometimes pride shows up when you have no confidence in God. It shows up like this. 
God, you don't know what I'm going through. Do you not see what I'm going through in my life? Do you not know the hard things? I expected you, Lord God, to do things the way that I wanted them done. And because you're not, I don't even trust you anymore. I don't even know if I can love you or if you even love me. And by that, pride begins to rise up. Because the motive of a proud person's prayer is to get their will done in heaven, not thy will be done. And in those moments... We're testifying that we believe that our sin and our heartache and our life are greater than his grace. And we doubt the power of Christ's blood and we doubt his love and care. And it's because of a prideful root that's grown sideways. And in the end of this behavior, we're stuck looking at ourselves instead of Christ. Another shape that it can take is when you're desperate for attention. You see, pride is, is hungry for attention. It's hungry for respect. It's hungry from worship in all of its forms. And maybe it comes across like this. Maybe it sounds like shameless boasting about ourselves where we're constantly telling people, you should admire me, you should respect me because this is what I've done and this is what I do. Or maybe it's being unable to say no to anybody. Because pride within you has led to a place where you need to be needed. And you want it so badly that you'll say yes to everybody so that people will depend upon you. Maybe it looks like obsessively thirsting for marriage or fantasizing about a better marriage because you are so hungry to be adored that you can't think about anything else. Or maybe it looks like being haunted by your desire to wear the right clothes or have the right car, the right house, or the right title at work. All because you want the people around you to look at you and admire you and respect you for what you've accomplished. Because you seek the glory that comes from men more than you seek the glory that comes from God. And sometimes it takes the shape of neglecting other people. Pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor, and it gives more weight to their words and their wants and their needs. Listen, I I will admit to you, there is a thrill that goes through me when people of high power and high authority acknowledge me and recognize me, unconsciously or, or consciously. There's something that's fed in my spirit when People that I admire say something or point me out in public, and it just feels good. But in that feeling of good, if it gets to a point where you begin to neglect those that can do nothing for you, and their opinion of you doesn't matter, then you've stepped over the threshold of what is healthy and beneficial to your spirit to that which may very well begin to lead you down a pathway of craving that. And maybe more of us struggle with pride than we thought. So as we enter the last point, what's the solution to our self-obsession? There's good news for the prideful. Confession of pride signals the beginning of the end for pride. It indicates the war is already being waged and that only when the Spirit of God is moving 
and already working to bring us to a place of being humbled before him, can we remove the lens of pride that we look through and that we can see ourselves clearly as the Spirit sees us and then we can identify the sickness and seek the cure in Jesus. By God's grace, we can turn once again to the glorious gospel in which we stand and and make much of him even as we identify that only he can do a work of surgery in us to remove the roots that cause us to want to be the center of the world. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, there's a verse. Some of you know it because there's songs that we have sang to this. But if you believe that there's something going on in your heart, it's a verse I ask you to pray. It simply says, search me, O God. I want you to know that's a prayer that God answers instantly. You ask God to search you, you better get ready because he doesn't delay on that one. Search me, O God, and know my heart. What he's really saying here is when you search me, you're going to see things in me that I don't like, so help me to know my own heart in your eyes. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. I don't like those two words. Because here's what happens. When we allow the Lord to have full oversight over us and begin to spotlight the things within our lives and you ask him to search you and to know your heart and to show you and test you, what testing means is after you have identified the qualities within my life that are dangerous to me and you point them out to me, test me so that we can prove that you've removed those from me. And if you fail that test, he'll test you again. And if you fail that test, he will test you again. And at some point, you either yield to him and say, all right, I am done with this, and you let him remove that from you, and you work through that, or you have capped your ability to grow in the Lord right there because I'll not let you go any farther in my life. So that's why the testing is important. So you're put back into a position where normally you would be proud for, or normally you'd have these thoughts, and then you have to respond, oh, God. Let me remain humble in this situation because my natural self would say this. My natural self would look at them and say, but you can't see the rottenness in you. Or my natural self would disregard them or cut them off because they don't have the right to speak into my life. But in those testing times, we step back. See, there's a lot of stuff that I could say. By the way, writing is really good. Go home and write. Write out everything you're feeling and then burn it. You get the joy of expressing all those things without the harm of living with the consequences. Test me. and Know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. C.S. Lewis says this, true humility is not thinking less of ourselves but thinking about ourselves less. Just the problem of pride does not boil down to whether we think high thoughts or low thoughts. It's a, the thoughts that we think about ourselves all the time. And humility can set you free because when you think about yourself less, you are free to think about Christ more. And you begin to put more of a trust in him. And humility puts you on a path of grace that pride puts you on a path of opposition. Here's the issue. We live in a society that says submission is weakness. Pride is power. 
And it's exactly the opposite spiritually. Jesus said, humility is power. Pride is weakness. Because one is based on my nature and the other is based on yours. And so part of the aspect of us in, in dealing with these things within our life is, is literally saying, Lord, I submit because I want to live within your power and I want to see what it's like to live in a place where in my submission, your strength rises up. Because here's what happens. Every one of us are pride, prideful in some ways or another. And the collision with your pride and the glory of God will end in one of two possible crash sites. Listen to me, please. Listen to me. There's only two ways that this ends. You either crash with your pride, having not dealt with it, and go to hell. Or you crash at the foot of the cross. Only two places that you will crash at. You will either pay for your own sins or Christ will pay for your sins on the cross. And hell is like an eternal crash site, a crime scene that never ends. It's a horror movie in which there's no closing credits because the movie never ends. But God in his mercy has made another way. The Son of God emptied himself by taking on humanity and humbled himself by obeying to the point of death, even death on the cross. And God sends his Son to vindicate the worth of his great name, which sinners have defamed. And so the sacrifice of Christ absorbs and satisfies the wrath of God against our own pride. And it's called atonement when he took our place as the propitiation of our sins. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it says, We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. This past, this past Wednesday night, we were talking in our, in our group about constructing our faith and the doctrines of the word of God that we need to build our life on. And we spent some time on a verse that I want to read you as the worship team comes. And it's found in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it says this. God made him. Now, made him is Jesus he's talking about. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we ask this question. How many of you think you have to be perfect to get into heaven? And we had a lot of different people that responded in different ways. I'm here to tell you today, you don't have to be perfect to qualify for heaven, but you have to be perfect to get into heaven. Because if perfection wasn't required, then Jesus wouldn't have had to become your sin so that you could become his righteousness. As we're getting ready for communion in a minute, I want you to think about that, that everything that you have ever done that's ever been done wrong before, that's ever been done wrong in your life or the sins that you have yet to be committed, Jesus was formed 
He was formed into that sin and he was nailed to the cross and the father turns his head from him because the sin that we've committed is so ugly to him. And there was a payment that you couldn't make and I couldn't make that Jesus made for us. And the whole purpose of that was he took our place so that when we stand before God, we wear his righteousness and the father sees perfection. Do I have to be perfect to get into heaven? Yes. Can I do it on my own? No. Only the prideful think that they'll go to heaven without Jesus. And their crash landing spot will not be pleasant. So today we come before you, Lord. With an understanding that in James it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In Proverbs it says, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. The psalmist writes in Psalm 18, 27, You save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So the Bible's answer to our fallen self-obsession is the great work of the gospel of Jesus Christ that paid for all of this on the cross for us. Pride is defeated decisively at conversion. It is progressively sifted out of your life through sanctification and the day will come when we will stand before God wrapped in his righteousness that it will be total glorification for Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life and it comes by the white hot worship that we give to our Lord so today which side of the line of scrimmage are you on because God opposes proud but he elevates the humble would you stand with me as we sing brothers if you'd begin to distribute the elements as they are being handed out if you would hold the elements until everybody was served and then I'll lead us in communion